This is Guns and Butter. So there's a fight over who's going to define the conditions of what some might call globalization 2.0, because we will get a new system. That's a guarantee. The current one we are living under was designed to blow. So I think there's a big fight over who can uh, shape as much as possible the terms of what that new system that will be brought online will be based upon. And will it be based upon what, you know, I often write about is a multipolar system of cooperation built around large scale infrastructure development, science, progress, things like that. Or will it be based upon this massive big depopulation agenda to create a dumbed down, stupidified, more well-behaved uh, society of maybe a billion or less people? That's, I think, the, uh, <laughs> the choice is currently being faced. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Matthew Errett. Today's show, Deep State versus Patriots, Clash in Russia, China, and USA. Matthew Errett is an historian and journalist. He is the editor-in-chief of the Canadian Patriot Review and senior fellow at the American University in Moscow. He is author of the Untold History of Canada book series and the Clash of the Two Americas trilogy. Today we discuss two opposing trends— the geopolitical rivalry between nation-states, and globalism as conceived by the World Economic Forum and the World Health Organization. Matthew Arrett, welcome. Thank you, Bonnie, for having me on. On the one hand, we're witnessing the collapse of the Western system of world domination and the rise of a multipolar world system led by Russia, China, Iran, and other countries. This geopolitical rivalry has now broken out into real military conflict between the East and the West in Ukraine. At the same time, though, we're living through the Great Reset, the Western system's effort to impose global medical martial law headed by the World Health Organization. The WHO declared a global pandemic beginning in early 2020, including lockdowns, mask wearing, injections, health passports, etc. Countries, for the most part, have gone along with this technological global domination scheme. Do you see these two developments, the geopolitical fight versus global coordination of the Great Reset, as oppositional? Or do you think that they are both part of the world to come? Or which trend do you think will eventually dominate? Oh, that's a great question to open up with. Um, I personally, looking at martial arts and especially uh, Aikido, I, uh, I think that there's a certain philosophy that one could glean, which also helps to crack the code sometimes into understanding real politic and history as it is made... Um, because there's a, there's the the history that's written by the winners, uh, depending on whatever narrative you want, uh, that's the sort of thing that's that's sold to us often in popular culture. But then there's the history as it happened, and when you read the the original writings of people um, who found themselves wielding political power, uh, good people often times had to do combat or always had to do combat with with forces of evil. So. Um, in Aikido, one of the, the points, and I think Bruce Lee also made that, this point, that um, martial arts is like water. You know, you, you have to use your opponent's energy against them, so you're not really kinetically just like fighting in a in a in a tit for tat way, but you're trying to use the the motion of the forces already existent to your benefit as much as possible. 
Um, in the case of China, Russia, other countries who have been playing along in various ways with the broader narratives that we know are destructive in terms of what we see coming out of Davos, in terms of the World Health Organization, um, one could conclude very easily, and many do, that Russia, China, and others who play along, who participate in these summits, um, who go to meetings held by and hosted by bad guys, are all equally in on it. Uh, this is something that I, I've thought about a lot. I've, I've researched this a lot. I, I have de had debates maintaining my position that that's not true um, in a variety of venues. The reason why I don't believe that this is so, and I think it's reasonable, um, that I think my, my concept is, is quite reasonable, is because when you look at what Russia and China have been dealing with for the past, uh, let's say, many recent history, right, since the collapse of the Soviet Union, there has been an a very clear depopulation agenda. It's been really even before that, this this idea of reducing the world population, dumbing the world down, deindustrializing, like destroying the means of supporting life um, in in favor of stripping nations of their ability to play any role in defense of the people who elect their, their representatives. So this whole nation stripping, depopulation, dumbing down, deindustrialization program has been going on for a very long time with the idea that you could create a calamity, a crisis of such magnitude that people would willfully accept a global fascist regime as their savior. Sort of like what we've seen happening time and again throughout history. Again, you know, I, I think taking a historical perspective, whether it was in the 20th century with the solution of fascism, of Hitler as the remedy to the, uh, the, the crisis induced by the hyperinflation in the 1920s in Germany, or again, fascism, Mussolini was Time's Man of the Year several times um, in the 1930s. This was being sold as the economic miracle solution to uh, the Great Depression and its devastation on the people. There's signs of this going back to the Roman Empire though, you know, create a crisis, offer the solution. Um, Russia and China, based upon their policies, right, the effects of their actions consistently over the past 30 years, especially, I would say a good a good uh, benchmark of this would be the moment George Soros tried to initiate a color revolution in China in 1989. His money bankrolled a big chunk of an attempt to have that regime change. Um, people like Gene Sharp, the father of color revolutions, was on the ground, as was George Bush Sr., who, who had a foray with the, the CIA for a period. It, it was an MI6 CIA-funded operation, directed and funded also with open society institutes. George Soros had his asset, his agent, Zhao Ziyang, who was the uh, head of the Chinese Communist Party at that time, from 87 to 89. Before that was the premier. Um, and he was being heralded as sort of the, the Chinese um, Yeltsin Gorbachev, you know, the savior of China to the West, who is going to lead China out of capitalism and liberalize their economy on behalf of the IMF, the World Bank, and uh, and basically privatize the central bank and other things. He co-ran a think tank with George Soros. Imagine that, right? George Soros had so much power in 1989 that he co-ran a think tank <laughs> with the head of the Chinese Communist Party. What amazing power is that that one can enjoy? And despite that, Soros, after the color revolution failed, which is sort of like a Maidan, you know, for people who want to get a sense of what the hell Tiananmen Square was, that's what I'm referring to, um, let go of the the propaganda that, you know, we've, we've suffered from 30 years of of CIA propaganda, the same type of, of operation that got us to believe that 9-11 was uh, done by some guy in a cave. Um, this was actually more like a Maidan-style operation that we saw unfold in 2014 
overseen by Victoria Newland, Biden, and uh, Jeffrey Pyatt, the the ambassador from the USA to Ukraine, who installed a uh, a Nazi infested regime uh, as a puppet dictatorship um, on behalf of the U.S. military industrial complex. That's sort of what was being driven in '89. So anyway, Soros, what happened? Did he did he continue his power? No. He was kicked out and banned for life. It's now illegal to operate an open society operation. Um, and it has been since 89. Uh, George Soros's tool, Zhao Jiang, was arrested, never permitted to leave his house again. He died in house arrest 16 years later, stripped of all of his uh, his honors. All of his allies, Chen Yitzi, who also ran another think tank with George Soros. There were two big ones. He was... Um, Ousted, I think he ended up escaping through the triads in Hong Kong. That's always been the CIA MI6 uh, base of operations of the Pacific. That's how it is known. It is not uh, <laughs> a part of, it's not what people think Hong Kong is. You know, when they see British American flags and big, you know, protest in 2019 calling for uh, independence, um, that was, again, not an honest revolutionary movement. That was funded by the CIA. But anyway, they escaped arrest in some cases. Some of these these provocateurs um, were driven out or escaped out through Operation Yellowbird, which was managed by the CIA and MI6 using triads, like I said, into um, New York, California, Vancouver, Toronto, where this became sort of a, a, an anti-Chinese government nucleus um, being provided sanctuary by Anglo-American intelligence, which is same thing we saw finally with Russia. Even though Russia didn't have the strength to, or wisdom at the time, to expel Soros the way China did. They suffered in the 90s, right? So they got their Soros full-blown, you know, reforms uh, overseen by Strobe Talbot and Victoria Newland, uh, Strobe Talbot's assistant, uh, who oversaw perestroika, the shock therapy of uh, the Russians, and pri- and the privatization and creation of a, of a IMF London a loyal fifth column, a, a deep state in Russia that was built up during that time. So they were ravaged. The Russian population demographics collapsed. It was just hell on earth. Uh, same thing for the former Soviet satellite states like Ukraine, which went from the highest per capita GDP uh, nation in 89 all the way to today, where it is the lowest of all European countries and the highest in corruption, obviously. All of this was created under the careful patronage of um this Anglo-American intelligence apparatus. So when Putin came in, he finally began a process of trying to push back for the first time against this thing. And we've seen examples of uh, many Russian oligarchs who went to prison, who didn't want to play by the new rules Putin was saying had to be abided by. Other ones who wanted to avoid prison, they found safe haven in, in London or Florida, where there's Russian oligarchs who've recently had their assets confiscated, actually, since the Ukraine events. But not for the reasons one would think. Um, Soros himself was ousted in 2015. So he was finally, it was made illegal to have a Soros operation or open society operation anywhere in Russia. Um, so they were a little bit late to the game. But overall, if you look at what have been the effects, yes, there has been social credit. Yes, we know the oligarchy loves social credit. You know, so that when they say, when you hear Henry Kissinger or Soros in 2009, say that we like China. What you have to keep in mind what they're saying or when you hear Justin Trudeau saying, I like China's totalitarian system, you know, that that's a something that went viral back that he said in 2015. 
What they're talking about is the centralized control. They like that. They like the ability to uh, to be able to bypass democratic institutions. They like the idea of a surveillance state. Hell, they're already doing it here. They like the idea of the social credit to uh, nudge the behavior of their of their target uh, victims into um, a slaughterhouse. They want the depopulation for that purpose, right? What they don't like is China's capacity to build big projects and work on undoing depopulation agendas by extending massive industrial development, not just to themselves, but also to their neighbors, working also on a security framework with Russia, Pakistan, India, and other members of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which is sort of the um, the, the counter-voice to NATO, right, representing like I said, even Iran is now on board. Uh, many countries, I think it's now 16 or so, but I, I might be wrong, um, are on board. It's an alternative security architecture, but it's 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 designed politically, economically, security-wise. It's built around um, win-win cooperation. So you have the undoing of points of tension, the creation of economic corridors of development that pull people out of poverty. 800 million so far have been pulled out of poverty by uh, China's economic programs alone. There are uh, programs that we have seen which have extended um, scientific and industrial aid so that countries in Africa, for example, for the first time, are seeing loans that are not tied to conditionalities like they were with the IMF or World Bank for 70 years. With China, they're actually – the only condition is that the project that you promise to be built get built. And if that makes bribes happen along the way, you do it. But the point is to make the project and most importantly – and that means dams. We've seen the biggest blossoming of large-scale infrastructure in history in Africa under this new design, but also extending education. So this is another thing for me that shows me that China is not operating on the same operating system or paradigm as the Great Reset. They're actually extending, they're, they're training new cadres, tens of thousands of engineers in Sudan, in Congo, in uh, Kenya and in, in Ethiopia to become engineers. That's something we've banned over 70 years that was never permitted under the Western uh, neo-colonial order, which means that Africa must stay poor, underdeveloped, uneducated so that their resources could be best extracted by Western corporations like, you know, Canada's Barrick Gold, Cecil Rhodes's De Beers, which runs all the diamond mines that still to this day is monopoly almost. Um, basically just pillaging Africa, including for rare earths that we enjoy for our cell phones and, uh, and, and telephones and stuff and solar panels. I'm speaking with historian and journalist Matthew Errett. Today's show, Deep State versus Patriots, Clash in Russia, China, and USA. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. So, um, yeah, China and Russia are doing, in terms of action, policies that reinforce or uplift the sovereignty of nations economically to be able to stand on their own two feet. They have done battle with the fifth column penetrations within their own countries. You know, Jack Ma is a Davos World Economic Forum trustee, just like, you know, Christia Freeland here in Canada or uh, Mark Carney. The difference being is here, Mark Carney and uh, Christia Freeland run the show as, you know, Justin's handlers. Whereas in China, Jack Ma, when he called for an insurrection against the Chinese uh, economic system, he was pretty much, you know, removed <laughs> uh, unceremoniously to his little mansion, stripped of all of his powers and told uh, to know your role and has since then had no role to play in anything of consequence in China. So there's actually evidence of, of pushback. Same thing for Anatoly Chubai, the leading um, 
privatizer in the 90s of Russia who still enjoyed vast uh, protection by some force. I mean, there's forces I don't fully understand. I'm, I'm trying to make sense of things as an analyst. Uh, but he got he still enjoyed a lot of protection and was the head of Rosnano. He brought in a lot of the green um, programs in uh, 2009, 2010, 11. He brought in a lot of the big pharma, Bill Gates type of operations into the big pharma uh, complex of Russia. It was all under his watch. He's been an enemy of Putin. Putin called out his department as being the department of the CIA in the 1990s. Um, a lot of his allies have been put in jail. Some of them have escaped. Some of them are waiting in the wings to to subvert Russia from within still still now. But even he had to jump ship, you know, after the, the Ukraine operation began um, to deal with the real threat of NATO absorbing Ukraine and, uh, you know, doing what they do to all former Soviet countries that become part of NATO, put in anti-Russian missiles encircling Russia. That had to be stopped, considering especially the fact that you have openly uh, – powerful neo-Nazis, not just in battalions, but also um, operating in the civil service, the deputy ministers. It, it's, it's, a, it's a real parasite. That was not tolerable. So since then, Anatoly Chubai has jumped ship to avoid uh, getting smacked down or cleansed, purged, um, where he now lives in Turkey um, in, a, in a little mansion. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot that could be said, including on bio, bioterror, bioweapons run by the U.S. bioweapons complex around the world, uh, which Russia and China are looking at. We could talk about that if you'd like, but there's so many points that, that convince me, I think with good reason, that they are not on board with the objectives of the Great Reset, although they are trying to control the, the, the terms of the new system. So there's a fight over who's going to define the conditions of what some might call globalization 2.0, because we will get a new system. That's a guarantee. The current one we are living under was designed to blow. So I think there's a big fight over who can uh, shape as much as possible the terms of what that new system that will be brought online will be based upon. And will it be based upon what, you know, I often write about is a multipolar system of cooperation built around large scale uh, infrastructure development, science, progress, things like that. Or will it be based upon this massive big depopulation agenda to create a dumbed down, stupidified, more well-behaved uh, society of maybe a billion or less people. That's, I think, the, uh, <laughs> the choice is currently being faced. And now, uh, Matthew, uh, you've already been answering this question, but we tend to think of a nation state as monolithic. But in fact, of course, they include different political groups vying for power, most mm -hmm. noticeably Western financial infiltration into Russia and China and many other countries. How would you characterize this Western infiltration into both Russia and China, and how powerful is it today? Now, you've already explained this very adequately, but what do you think the power of these uh, fifth columnists in China and Russia today mm. have? I mean, obviously it's crumbling, but they still yeah. maintain some power, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. You got to always have that in mind. And I think that um, on top of, of what I had said, there are, there are things, as, as I really have to point out as a point of just disclaimer, I, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't have, I'm not there in the corridors of power. So you know, I'm inferring, I'm trying to make sense of things as best I can with a sense of context. However, certain things I do know, the, the power hold is far less today than it was even a decade ago in China. Uh, and in Russia's case, I think China has done overall a better job of purging things um, that were very strong, like this parasite 
or cancer was metastasized quite a bit by the late 80s. Um, so they've done a better job than Russia, but Russia's been moving in a, in a progressively useful direction as well. Um, one thing I do know I can say about China is that Shanghai, there's still what's called the Shanghai clique. Uh, these are multi-billionaires who received much of their affluence under the age of relative, you know, wild, wild west looting in the 80s and 90s. Many of these groups, they're not all bad, but many of the worst elements do tend to center around the figure of Zhang Zemin, who is the former um, uh, premier of China. And um, people like Jack Ma, for example, was uh, patronized by uh, the Zemin family. There's many others. Uh, we know that there's been about a million and a half uh, prosecutions in varying degrees since Xi Jinping entered office in 2012. I mean, these are the most historic criminal prosecutions and anti-corruption prosecutions we've ever seen with so many people um, within the Chinese Communist Party being purged, being stripped of their their assets or in, uh, not their assets, their, their privileges or in some cases jailed. Um, so this has been something going on. Today, I don't know, like, for example, there are scary images of things happening in Shanghai for the past few weeks. Um, my assessment of this is that it makes the most sense to me based on what I know and the context of what I know regarding the international biolabs maintained by the U.S. military industrial complex, which I know also involve ethnic targeting projects as well that could target certain genotypes um, that would, let's say, hurt um, or target uh, Han or Slav or other, let's say you want an Iranian genotype, there's ways to do that, um, utilizing the the genetic manipulation of certain pathogens in laboratories. This is something that's been on the books openly for a very long time. The neoconservatives even wrote about it in depth in their Project for a New American Century manifesto, the Rebuilding America's Defenses. So there's that. And that's, I know for a fact that the, the Russians and Chinese are very concerned and have been and have been also treating COVID-19 as a potential seeding of some form of U.S. bioterror attack since the very beginning. And there's been messaging put out by the Chinese foreign ministry since the first weeks of this thing two years ago, um, indicating their concerns of, and again, it's 300 plus U.S. bioweapons. Uh, they call them biolabs, bioresearch facilities, but uh, they obviously have a capability of carrying out all sorts of uh, weaponized activity um, in biological terror. There's 30 in Ukraine, there's about the same number in Georgia. Many are funded by Metabiota or maintained by Metabiota, which received its funding by Hunter Biden uh, through his Rosemont Seneca that's recently been wiped off of uh, Wikipedia for, for not being interesting enough or something. Um, so this is a part of the thing. Am I 100% sure that everything going on in Shanghai now is purely that China is trying to maintain control of the situation in the light of a possible new release of some form of pathogen. Um, I don't have 100% uh, certainty of that. I think it's reliably certain, but not 100%. Is some of this being manipulated maybe as well by the uh, Shanghai-centered billionaires, some of whom are traders? Maybe. Could be. It is the, the financial nerve center of China. It's sort of like the Wall Street of China with 26 million people living in closely packed quarters. You know, that's all of Canada almost. If you were going to deploy something there, that, that would be a strategic place to strike. And if you were going to cripple a, a nation, that would be a place you would want to hit. So maybe, um, but I, I don't know. As far as Russia is concerned and the Russian fifth columns, 
Well, there, there, there are nationalists and patriots around Putin, like Sergei Glaziev, Shoigu, who um, all have worked very hard to uh, keep Russia alive from those who want to balkanize. You know, there, there have been projects to uh, cut up Russia into something like eight or nine little microstates uh, to be controlled by the IMF. Zbigniew Brzezinski wrote a lot about that in the 90s. Uh, same think tanks that were affiliated with those projects were also showcasing you know, carved up China with like seven or so micro nations uh, defined by ethno-nationalist uh, ideologies in uh, the Uyghur, the Xinjiang region, Tibet, southern Mongolia, uh, Hong Kong, uh, Free State, Taiwan. Like these are all things that Western neocon think tanks have been pushing concerning the Chinese and Russians. And there are those in China and in Russia, I think, who would go along with that. Um, currently, the Bank of of Russia is is not under the control of the Patriots. There's a fight over what the economic destiny will be, and and currently a Yale graduate named uh, Elvira Nebulina is in control. She has been so far protected by something which has even induced Putin to um, hire her for another term. Whether she can be fired or not, I, I hope she is. But she's been keeping Russia, the Russian ruble, from being pegged to gold as as many would want it to, and instead remain beholden to the IMF floating exchange rates, which keeps it very uh, volatile, tied to speculative practices, and thus open to economic uh, warfare by speculation, which has been the tool of, of Soros, right, since the since the 70s. Um, so you have this sort of thing. The other aspect I would say is that the Russian oligarchs who have been trying to avoid being persecuted by Putin, who hate him, um, and many who have been living and keeping their assets in Cyprus, in uh, Britain, in, in the U.S. Um, they've watched their, their assets frozen, including their yachts, their mansions. And there's currently a policy to induce them by uh, bribe to have their assets released and returned to them under the condition that they uh, execute or eliminate under any way possible Vladimir Putin. That's when Joe Biden came out saying, you know, can't somebody eliminate Putin? <laughs> um He's not able to filter himself because he has no brain, but he's receiving these sorts of, of briefings, you know, of like this is the agenda uh, to try to use this fifth column inside of Russia to have like a Praetorian guard sort of assassination of an emperor. Um, that's that's in many ways how the Roman Empire managed itself. You know, there, there are like 14 Roman empires who got assassinated by their Praetorian guard. Um, that's sort of like what these things are today. The mafia is organized that way, too. So, yeah, there's that. It's a lot to hold in mind, but. You got to just have that sense of these these deep staters. What is it? How are they beholden to the Western controllers? And what are the patriots and nationalists who are and have been and will be continuously fighting back against them? But but China is in a better place in that sense. I think their their worst elements have been expelled, like people like Miles Guo, who works with Steve Bannon, right? Um, he ran a, a very big. He was like the, one of the richest guys in China up until 2014. Uh, he realized that he was about to uh, go to jail for good reasons, and he escaped that and uh, found himself working closely with this foreign insurrectionary qua uh, thing, acting like patriots around Bannon, um, but really just pushing for the overthrow of China, putting forth a, a post-Chinese uh, Communist Party constitution, working with the Ukrainian Nazis as well, uh, with outposts in, in Taiwan and Hong Kong and, and Ukraine. So there, there's this thing too, but but I see that as mostly outside of China, working from the outside, and and fewer evil agencies from the within at this point. I'm speaking with historian and journalist Matthew Errett. Today's show, 
Deep State versus Patriots, Clash in Russia, China, and USA. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You have referred to a 2020 coup d'etat in Russia that I was unaware of. Could you uh-huh. tell us what you know about this coup? Well, it was an attempted coup, and it was a bit of a surprise for me. It's a chapter of my new book, uh, on the birth of a Eurasian Manifest Destiny. I, I, I wanted to have a, a few chapters on there just sort of mapping out as much as I could the Chinese and Russian deep state. And so in doing that research, I was surprised um, of this this event. <laughs> um, and I don't have all of the details, but I have enough. Um, January 2020 was a very big month uh, in world history for a variety of reasons, right? Um, that was the that was the month that George Soros went to Davos and said the two greatest threats to his open society were Xi Jinping's uh, China and Donald Trump's USA. Uh, he did so at that time because that was also the month where the U.S.-China trade deal that was negotiated by Trump and Xi Jinping went into its first phase of operations where the Chinese were agreeing to buy $350 billion of finished goods from the uh, destroyed um, rust belt of Detroit, Philadelphia that was going to be retooled and revived under, uh, under a new strategy. That couldn't happen because the idea in the oligarchy's mind, and it's been like this since JFK was killed and even before that, that the greatest threat would be the coalition of, the, of a reformed USA brought back to its, its constitutional um, interests with China and Russia as their allies. That type of coalition of civilizational forces, it would be something that the, the oligarchy, which is above nations, centered in London, as it has been since the American Revolution, could not tolerate. It would it would have a power to, to smother this oligarchy from the face of the earth, which is why they were, I think, so so very desperate to get Trump out in any way possible, using Russiagate, whatever. Um, so anyway, January 2020 was that. There was also a year a pathogen was, was released in some fashion. Um, and I'm not even saying the V word, okay? I'm not even saying that this is a virus. I've seen persuasive arguments to indicate that this is something else. I'm just simply saying there is something called a pathogen, and there is an ability to genetically modify things that can then be released and cause organisms to react badly, right? Um, that's all I'm saying at this point. And um, this came right after event 201. But this gets us now to your question. So what was going on with, with Russia? Russia and China have a survivor's pact. Um, it, it's, a, it's unbreakable. It's adamant. The month began with... Soleimani being killed, it was blamed entirely on Trump. Now, I've seen enough evidence to indicate that Soleimani, the the head of the Iranian military, was not, his assassination was not carried out with Trump's authorization, though Trump did have to own it, because admitting that you have an independent military industrial intelligence complex running policy against your will is a sign of huge weakness, and really a sign that, that basically admits to the world there is no sovereign Republic. The the Republic is taken over by a foreign entity. You can't say that. That's like right there. <laughs> like there there's implications. It's like China saying, oh, yeah, we we we're, we we recognize that the U.S. is planning a bio attack on us. If they go out and say that, that means World War Three. They're not willing to just burn those bridges. They're trying to keep diplomatic channels open. Same thing for Russia. Um, now, Putin um, had to deal with something serious uh, around January 14th, 15th. Um, the consequences of the Iranians who had been induced uh, just a few days after Soleimani was killed to shoot down an airliner, a Ukrainian international airliner filled with people, 
uh, that was leaving Tehran, um, it was shot down by the Iranian military. They were on high alert after uh, Soleimani was killed, and it was nearly World War III. Um, that was negotiated with Trump directly from the Oval Office and Tehran to uh, turn that down. And there was like a little mini tit for tat thing. Nobody was killed and the situation was kind of resolved. All that to say what happened after that, uh, Ukrainian airliner was shot down was somebody who people have thought of as being a representative or voice of Russia came out, uh, saying that Putin should take this opportunity to now admit that he had shot down the, uh, the Ukrainian airline, Ukraine airline, uh, MH17 over Ukraine in 2014 and just be a man like the Iranians who would admit that they did it. They apologize. They, they said it was an error. Um, personally, I think it was a cyber attack, uh, that induced the Iranians to think, to, to recognize on their radar systems, this plane as being, uh, some form of a missile, but, uh, that that's neither here nor there. They, they chose to go with a foreign policy of saying, we are sorry, we we're owning that, that, uh, tragic act. And who was it who told Putin, and this was covered in Bloomberg, it was covered in NBC, BBC, everywhere, who told Putin from Russia that take this now and man up and own that you also shot down this airliner full of people over Ukraine? It was the head of Russia today, um, Margarita Semyonin. And Margarita has been positioned there, I think, as uh, somebody who's a bit of a dimwit, um, RT has has useful things on it. There's useful people who write on it. But I think overall, there's also something insurrectionary embedded within its its governance. Um, and this was designed her her pushing Putin now all of a sudden to say that we you must also admit that you shot down this this Ukraine airliner. It wasn't Ukrainian Nazis. It was you um, coincided with, a, I think, a day later, um, a giant walk out of the entire Russian cabinet around Putin. The government basically resigned. And there's a lot of intel that indicates that there was an attempt at that point to remove Putin under this uh, coalition of um, resistance within Russia. And I don't know what type of back channel agreements, threats, fights occurred, but it didn't go that way. Um, now, I know for a fact that both the the 2014 Ukraine Airlines uh, MH17, as well as the Ukraine airline that got shot down in U Iran, have very suspicious controllers. Number one is that they're both owned. The company is owned by a fellow named Igor Kolomoskoy. I don't know if you, you know Igor Kolomoskoy? Yes, I have. Yes. Yeah. And this billionaire, he was the one of the richest men and is one of the richest men in Ukraine. He's one of the primary bank rollers of the Azov Battalion, the Dnieper Battalions. These are neo-Nazi battalions. Um, he is also the primary owner. He's an, a minerals energy magnate who is the primary owner through two shell companies of uh, a Ukrainian energy firm called uh, Burisma, <laughs> Burisma Holdings, mm. uh, which is, I think everyone should know, uh, the center of graft under the Biden clan um, that Hunter, you know, reaps, I think, 50000 a month just simply sitting on the board with no experience opening up the doors to giving access to his father. And uh, overall, I think there's something like three or four million dollars just in that venture alone that was garnered to the Biden family, 10% going to the big guy as Hunter Biden's laptop has testified. Now, Kola Muskoy, not only does he own these things and funding Nazis, you know, as far as a, a movement, he also is the founder of the uh, Israel European Parliament. I mean, this guy's a hardcore Zionist 
who uh, has no problem bringing Israeli intelligence and, and interests into an alignment with Nazis, who you would think would be a very antagonistic type of relationship. But that's how this game works. It's it's not about religion. It's about something more. So this is and this is where you also have evidence of a variety of Israel defense forces, many even uh, Hasidic or variants of certain Hasidic groups tied to uh, what uh, Kolomoskoy uh, finances and bankrolls, like uh, one being Chabad uh, Lubavitch. It's one big organization with a lot of branches in the United States, centered in Brooklyn, um, that have activity collaborating with these Azovs against carrying out jihad against the Russians. Also, I mean, if you look at it, the fact that Israel has also, or, or groups within Israeli intelligence, I don't want to paint anything with a, with, a, with a paintbrush, all black or white, but there are these weird groups with a lot of power embedded within Israeli intelligence and uh, the, the Israeli deep state, which is happy to kill its own people, as we've seen under uh, two years of, of COVID, right? <laughs> the Israelis have, have not benefited by their, what is it, 18th jab at this point. Um the uh, they're more than willing to bankroll ISIS and other groups that are uh, assets for Anglo-American intelligence who are otherwise representing the worst of radical Islamic sects of of terrorists. So it's that these these are not there's a higher game being played that is driven by a a political ideology. And it's not about these religious ideologies individually that matters so much. And that's important to keep, hold that in mind, too. But, yeah, that, I hope that sort of answers in some indirect way your question about the uh, coup d'etat attempt in Russia. Thank you for clarifying the fact that, and you're right, it was an attempted coup, obviously, it wasn't successful, but that that happened simultaneously or right after the assassination of Iranian General Soleimani, which that entire assassination did not seem right from the very beginning. He was supposedly on a peace mission, Soleimani, to make peace between uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran. And after he was assassinated, as you pointed out, President Trump uh, took responsibility for that, but it didn't feel right. And then President Trump, in my recollection, invited the Iranians to retaliate. And then, as you pointed out, when that Ukrainian passenger jet was shot down by uh, the Iranians in Tehran on takeoff, President Trump immediately said, oh yes, they, uh, they shot it down, but they didn't mean to. It was a mistake. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad you brought that up. And then this attempted coup against uh, Vladimir Putin. And then this suggestion that you bring up by the now head of RT. As we recall, uh, the original head of RT was assassinated or died, pardonly, or committed suicide in a hotel in Washington, D.C. That's right. That's right. Yes, exactly. In 2015. And uh, yeah, he was very clearly killed, eliminated. Um, whether uh, Margarita was a part of that, I don't know that. I mean, I don't mm -hmm. think that she's all that bright personally. She's mm -hmm. sort of like a she has a diva mentality. She kind of wants to really be liked right now. She's currently playing a useful role at the moment. But if I look at everything she's been doing, operating in that position for the past six or seven years, um, no, she's been providing um, 
a voice, a platform for many of Putin's enemies like Alexei Kudrin, the former finance minister who's also a major Soros operative who was brought into play in the 1990s, who was fired, you know, unceremoniously um, for being a traitor in 20, 2011. Um, he's also being protected and being given more positions or uh, despite the fact he was taken out of a very serious position of power, he has been brought back into play as I think the head of the Chamber of Commerce or something like that. I, I forget. Um, so he's been given a platform to constantly spew his poisonous uh, um, criticisms of Russia and Putin specifically on the pages of RT. Um, RT has also been used to promote a lot of the um, the propaganda around the fear porn of uh, COVID, um, as well as you know just infusing um, CIA. Uh, extraterrestrial psyops that just occasionally every few days find a little article on RT, you know, like the CIA is about to release more information about the ETs that are actually running the world, which just really destabilize people's minds. I mean, there's a, there's a variety, a, multi, a multitude of, of effects that are desirable by having this type of information being put out there into the zeitgeist. Um, but I think overall, yeah, I mean, RT though it has overall served a useful geopolitical platform to provide alternative media analysis, and a lot of good writers write for them, overall it could turn on a dime, you know, um, and become the opposite. I'm speaking with historian and journalist Matthew Errett. Today's show, Deep State versus Patriots, Clash in Russia, China, and USA. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. And also, as far as... Um, um, Trump. Yeah, I mean, that that was, yeah, you picked up on that. I think everybody who kind of got a sense of what Trump was recognized the paradoxes in the messaging and could see that there was another game being played um, where, you know, like the fact that Trump immediately bypassed the State Department after Soleimani was killed and got on the on a line through the uh, the Swiss embassy in Tehran directly uh, from the Oval Office to begin a full day negotiation on de-escalating. Since somebody wanted to create a war, uh, absolutely, and and Trump had put a lot of effort into brokering a peace deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia, and unfortunately, uh, President Al Mahdi of uh, Iraq at the time didn't understand the nuance of it all, and he came out publicly saying, "Look, it's Trump's fault. He's the one who killed." Because it wasn't just Soleimani; Suleimani, it was also the head of the Iraqi military who also played a key role. Um, in brokering this peace deal uh, with Saudi Arabia and also dealing with ISIS and, and trying to get a collaboration with the Russian military systems in uh, Syria. So he was also killed. And El Mahdi, uh, the, 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 I think, well-intended prime minister of Iraq, um, who was ousted in a bit of a, a, a color revolution um, later on that year, he said, oh, look, Trump was the one who brokered this deal. And he, he did it just to get everybody in the same place at the same time so he could assassinate them. And he like lashed out. But but that also rang a bell to me. I was like, really? Trump brokered that? That was the first time I had, I had heard. And I, I think that Trump actually did really genuinely want to get some genuine peace agreements around what he was doing with the Abraham Accords and other things in the Middle East around uh, around development of, of economic activity instead of just, you know, um, the old school British imperial game of divide to conquer. So um, also, you know, keep in mind, China, I mean, he was working very closely behind the scenes, though he often spoke out, you know, with ugly words against China uh, during much of his, his presidency. He was working very clearly with, with Xi Jinping on a variety, a multitude of levels from day one where he killed the TPP, which was a, a, an anti-China trade deal to create a NAFTA of the Pacific. 
and isolate China from its Pacific neighbors. He that was the first thing Trump destroyed with an executive order. And ever since then, he was pulling the U.S. Um, intelligence and uh, and and different NED National Endowment for Democracy operations out of operation, whether it was in Asia, Africa, Hong Kong, everywhere. He was just extracting U.S. interests to really look out for America first, which gave the space needed for China to extend uh, BRI, Belt and Road Initiative uh, projects, to all of the world. 140 countries are now on board to varying degrees. And most of that growth happened under Trump's presidency, which is why these NATO uh, freaks at the CFR and Atlantic Council were freaking out the whole time saying, look, Trump is continuously offering our enemies uh, gifts. <laughs> He's subverting our, uh, our um, you know, new American century. So, yeah. Let's talk about energy policy. Here in California, we have a group developing and promoting a Green New Deal which is targeting the fossil fuel industry to be replaced by electricity as the energy of choice. Doesn't electricity require more energy input? Could, could you talk about sustainable development as a control mechanism? Um, yeah. I've been hearing for a long time now that we are to be deprived of energy. Our food is to be taken away. Cattle are bad for the environment. We'll be lucky to be eating insects in the future. It, yeah. it sounds like a sadist's dream. Yeah. What yeah. are China and Russia's energy policies as opposed to the West's? And how do you account for the difference? That's a, that's a really great uh, final question. And I think that, indeed, it is becoming more and more clear for people who are maybe confused about what the whole Green New Deal was all about, since we've heard this terminology utilized for some years. I think the first time was uh, the British um, the British government who used it in 2009, and it became an American idea, or it transplanted into the United States zeitgeist in uh, 2017. The overarching idea is genocide. It is a depopulation agenda. And, and many people were confused thinking maybe they really do, the promoters of it really do just care about the climate and, and having a cleaner, non-polluted world. Um, it's, I think, in the context of everything else that has been experienced over the past two years, it's more and more clear that the effects of this are to reduce the means of supporting human life and ironically also making the world much more polluted and destroying nature even more, again, quite ironic. Um, and I say that because, so let's enter the, the the second part first, okay? How is it destroying nature? Well, if you look beyond the simple photovoltaic uh, cells or um, gigantic, you know, Boeing 737-sized uh, windmills, which have to litter the landscape all over former farmland and everything else um, to get us some electricity to make some turbine spin, um, or in the case of the uh, the solar panels to simply store energy in a battery that is then released. Um, the resources that go into that are a lot of rare earths, a lot of rare earths. I don't have the, the numbers in front of me at the moment, but it's massive. Uh, the, the amount of mining and in destruction to ecosystems that has to occur to produce the types of lithium and other, other forms of rare earths, uh, primarily from Africa, but other parts of the world too, South America, it's... It, exorbitant. Um, a lot of this is also being 
um, made possible by a lot of child labor, kids under the age of 15 working in mines all across Africa under the control of Barrick Gold, of other mining interests that are mostly on the London uh, Stock Exchange, London Anglo-Canadian-centered uh, mining cartels uh, control most of that uh, slave labor process. So it is destructive as hell. You also can't really recycle these things. Um, it's a it's a it's a nightmare to uh, think about how do you reprocess or recycle that you can't. They go into minefields at landfills after their life expectancy is over, um, and there's nothing that can be done about that either. And their life expectancy is is pretty abysmal. It's like twenty to thirty years. The other thing is that they're not really sustainable because you cannot create, let's say you want to create a windmill, you can't use the type of electricity that you get from windmill energy. You can't use it to make a windmill. The same thing for a solar panel. Um, the type of industrial and in energy intensive operations that are required to have industrial steel melt, processing, um, everything else, including the mining operations can only be done with at the very least fossil fuels. Um, you, you just, you can't. Once they're built, so on top of the fact that you can't make a windmill with a windmill energy, um, on top of that, the quality of energy, like I said, is very low grade. It's called low energy flux density electricity. Um, I like the formulation by the American economist who recently died, uh, Lyndon LaRouche. He, he had the science of energy policy very well put together, and I think you could learn a lot. Any, anybody listening could learn a lot by just reading his understanding of physical economy and energy. Um, the point often made is that the... The equivalent, if you look at the equivalent amount of energy one could get from like um, a nuclear third, fourth generation nuclear power plant, meltdown proof that occupies maybe a couple of city blocks in terms of space, that gives you such a high quality of energy consistently, not dependent upon the wind or whether it's cloudy and also of such a high grade that you could sustain industrial civilization at a very high standard of living versus look at the amounts of hectares. Thousands and thousands of hectares have to be allocated to windmills and solar panels just to get a little bit of energy that could maybe sustain residential buildings, not industrial activity. And that's the, the design. As far as the food, yeah, they also have a desire to destroy our food crops. Thousands of farmers are, are taking videos of themselves crying because they're being forced by the government to destroy their crops. Um, it's happening in Canada, too. Other farmers are being labeled uh, climate offenders because apparently the fertilizers and the methane that comes out of cow farms is causing the, the earth to apparently like boil over. And so they're being demonized and made enemies um, of the minds of like soft city city folk, <laughs> cosmopolitan people who, who they don't know what productivity is. Um, and these, these farmers in the U.S. are being told like or they're, they're, they're saying that we have to sell our goods. We're being offered one5 times market value for our crops, but not to eat them. They're being used to uh, to just basically destroy the crops. Or in some cases, biofuels, to burn the crops for gas gas tanks for cars, which I think even now is about 35 or 40% of US corn production goes towards burning, as it has since George Bush Jr., for bioethanol to save the environment. How that saves the environment? Nobody talks about that because it doesn't. It causes more starvation, if anything, and it's still toxic. So there is an, an effort. We, we could talk next time we meet up about some of the other Bill Gates-affiliated or funded operations to create CRISPR cows and genetically modified operations to, uh, you know, create bugs, bug burgers and bug muffins uh, to get us off of meat. 
Uh, but all that to say, there is scarcity artificially being created in order to justify the argument that, look, there's just too many of us. That's why we have pandemics. That's why we have uh, climate change. That's why we have uh, wars. It's all because there's too many people and we'd have more peace, a cleaner world, a better place if we had fewer people. And if that means making some tough decisions like, you know, justifying grandma getting turned into Soylent Green because she's too expensive to maintain. Um well, so be it, you know, at least we're going to get to eat. <laughs> it's sick, but that's, that's, how, that's how the arguments are being skewed. Well, what is your assessment of the uh, very big push to replace fossil fuel energy with electricity? I keep being told by scientist friends that it takes more energy to create electricity. Yeah, it's completely energy intensive. It does not, the what's called the... Um, uh, energy return on investment ratio in terms of you can measure the relative amount of total energy that whether it's um, a natural gas plant or a hydroelectric power station or a nuclear plant um, garner in the course of their lifespan versus how much energy input was required to build and maintain them. There's the best type of ratio you get is with nuclear. The second best is with natural gas uh, oil than coal, but they're all in the plus. They're all surplus energy that you're getting out versus what you put in, which is good. That's the whole point. <laughs> Whereas when you compare that to like um, the same energy return on investment ratios for windmills or solar plants, it's the very opposite. You're lucky to get a break even, but usually you're you're putting in a lot more energy just to build and maintain than you are getting out of them um, over their lifespan by far. I mean, it, it's it's quite absurd. So there's no real reason to have these things. They're they're they suck time, energy, money, um, and it's really just the new speculative economic bubble where they're trying to create a new type of economy. That's what Mark Carney and others of the green, you know, the Great Reset it, uh, worldview. They're trying to bring online a new type of economic order premised around values that are different from the previous values that have sustained civilization for hundreds of years. And their idea is well, formally, the economic wisdom was that. You want to uh, increase productivity with your uh, capital investments into things. And the idea of increasing your productivity, increasing your free energy in, in the system is always is a good. And they're saying, no, that's actually a bad. We were wrong. And the new values have to be to economically incentivize diminishing our productivity over time. So you want to make it more profitable to destroy the means of production which are otherwise required to sustain the life of people and to put money on things like cap and trade, decarbonization, other things is what we're going to create uh, economically favorable conditions, especially for speculators. And we won't provide loans to uh, polluting uh, industries or, or companies that increase our carbon footprint. So the reduction of the carbon footprint is seen as being a great virtue to save the world. But in reality, that's code for reducing human life on the earth, the means of supporting life. So that's always the, been the objective is to reduce the means of sustaining life. Since Kissinger orchestrated the, the floating of the U.S. dollar back in 1971 from the gold reserve system, while at the same time he put his student Klaus Schwab into a position of power at the World Economic Forum on behalf of their oligarchical interests who use these technocrats, these managers – for uh, for their own ends. But I mean, to say that Klaus Schwab or Kissinger are themselves the cause of anything is is absurd. 
But the design of that was to always transform a viable industrial capital economy that we had had since World War II into a basket case consumer society cult of speculation and myopia that couldn't think longer than a few months into the future or a few years into the past. And thus, <laughs> the effect was foreseeably the creation of a giant bubble where we once had an economy and bubbles always pop like a time bomb. So it's they turned our economy into a time bomb. And the only way out of that is to simply return back to you need you need serious reconstructive surgery to preserve the healthy tissue within the economic system that's otherwise going to blow. A lot of the unpayable debts are artificially created to keep us hostage. Their destiny is to blow up. And the question is, do we want to take that that pain of the, the controlled disintegration of the system? Or do we want to do things that involve putting the pain on those oligarchs trying to manage the, the collapse for their benefit? Because there, there's a way of doing that. And that requires looking at what Franklin Roosevelt did in the 1930s when he declared war on Wall Street. Matthew Arrett, thank you very much. Sure, my pleasure. I've been speaking with Matthew Arrett. Today's show has been Deep State versus Patriots, Clash in Russia, China, and USA. Matthew Arrett is an historian and journalist. He is editor-in-chief of the Canadian Patriot Review and senior fellow at the American University in Moscow. He is author of the Untold History of Canada book series and the Clash of the Two Americas trilogy. Visit his websites at canadianpatriot.org and risingtidefoundation.net. That's canadianpatriot.org and risingtidefoundation.net. He's on Substack at matthewerrett.substack.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yara Mako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at G&B Radio.